Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with guest pastor Char Broderson. A culture of goodness is a culture where we build one another up, where we bring encouragement to one another. And if we are going to critique one another, it is for the sake of building one another up, not for the sake of exposing and canceling one another. So let's be a contrasting culture to the culture of the world. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Char Broderson continues our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Join us as Pastor Char concludes his teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, in part one of a message titled, Instruction for the Worshiping Community, Living Out the Prophetic Vision. And now, here's Pastor Char. Those maybe who had even been freed out of slavery, it was to signify your class and your place in society. And in light of all this, listen to Paul's instruction again. And remember, this is instruction on the gathered worshiping community. Every woman who prays, that is speaking to God on behalf of the congregation, or prophesies, that is speaking to the congregation on behalf of God, with her head uncovered, unveiled, dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Now, there's evidence that the shaved head was a sign of the temple prostitutes of the day. So Paul seems to be making a connection there, again, with the shame, the dishonor. But listen, Paul wants all the women in the gathered worshiping community to veil. This means that Paul wants all women to veil their heads while praying and prophesying, even those who, according to Roman law, are not allowed to veil in the culture. Those like female slaves, freed women, prostitutes, or those who came out of prostitution, and those of lower class. Remember what Paul had already implied about the Corinthian community. They come from lowly stock, not many wise, not many noble, Some had come out of broken sexual practices and lifestyles, like prostitution and temple prostitution. Paul says about all of that, that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. My question is, is this chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, Paul's practical outliving of 1 Corinthians 6, 11? He wants them to live out, but such were some of you, but now in Christ Jesus. You see, veiling and unveiling had direct social implications of shame and honor, chastity and impurity for the Corinthian church community. But Paul is dismissing all of the social categories and distinctions of noble, lower class, chaste, defiled, saying, I want all women in the worshiping community to have this status of honor and chastity. Now, this could be lost on us, but think for a moment with me of Les Miserables. Think of Victor Hugo's character of Jean Valjean and the way he and others in that society were marked for life by their past sins and failures. 
There is nowhere he can go where he can publicly live out in society because he's been marked. He has to hide. He's constantly on the run. This is what often happens in shame honor cultures or even in guilt, innocence type of cultures. And I would add that we are seeing the return of this kind of thinking and practice in cancel culture. Where can people go to be forgiven? Where can people go to be cleansed and reconciled and healed? Cynthia Westfall in her book, Paul and Gender, says, Paul's support of all women veiling equalized the social relationships in the community. Inasmuch as such veiling was in his control, he secured respect, honor, and sexual purity for women in the church who were denied that status in the culture. Wow. Wow. Paul's desire was that the Corinthian church would be a haven, a refuge from the social hierarchies of shame and honor in the surrounding culture. And as the church lived out this vision of respect, honor, and purity, it would radically stand out as a bastion of a different kingdom, a kingdom of honor, a kingdom of healing, a kingdom of love and a kingdom of grace. Well, you might be thinking, okay, Char, that's all fascinating. But clearly Paul is talking about authority here because he speaks of the order of creation and of man or the husband being the head. So what about headship? And I would say it's interesting that you would bring that up. The word head can actually mean many things in the Greek. Even in our passage, we see that. It can mean head in the physical, anatomical sense. It can mean head as a reference to the whole person. It can mean head as the source. Think about like the headwaters. So as in source or source of life. And finally... Head can be used as a metaphor for a leader, ruler, or authority. So for argument's sake, let's say in this passage that head means authority or leader. We'll just go with that interpretation for a minute. And I would say first, there is nothing in the creation account that Paul roots this in that implies that the man is the authority over the woman. And I challenge you to go home and to read it again. Rather, what is taught is that male and female are both created in the image of God. And that together they image the one true God. Both are commissioned to fill the earth. Both are commissioned to rule over it. However... The creation account does tell the story about God being the source of life for the man, doesn't it? We're told that God formed man of the dust of the earth and breathed on him the breath of life. We're also told that man is the source of life for the woman because woman was taken out of man from his side as he slept. God formed the woman and brought the woman to the man. 
Not only that, but in our Corinthian passage, Paul makes a claim of mutual dependence of male and female. He does not argue that the husband has the authority to tell the wife what to wear or anything like that. That's not what Paul's arguing. Instead, he says, in the Lord, meaning for those who belong to Jesus and are a part of the Jesus community, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So Paul's teaching is that in Jesus, there is to be a community of interdependence and mutuality. I would also add to this, the Bible's view and treatment of women has historically been countercultural to the world's view and treatment of women. Start there in Genesis 1 and 2, just as I said, man and woman together, image the one true God. Male and female are to fill the world with the image of God. Male and female are to rule over the creation in God's stead or for him. But then we come to the law of Moses. And I know sometimes we read the law of Moses and we're like, what in the world? But I want to tell you that compared to the laws of the day, specifically the law of Hammurabi, God's revelation of the treatment of women is so progressive to what you find in that day. And I would say it's always forward-looking to what we will see culminate in Messiah. But we don't have just the law of Moses. We even have the judges, Deborah. We have the queens, Esther, Bathsheba, and we could go on and talk about other queens that are highlighted. We have the prophetesses. And I remember one time my dad was talking about how the king, I can't remember who it is, but it's in the days of Jeremiah. The king seeks out not Jeremiah the prophet, but he seeks out the prophetess. And these are some things that we can often miss in the biblical text. Finally, we see this culminating in the Jesus stories in which women were among Jesus' inner circle of disciples and even paid for his needs. They are highlighted again and again as understanding Jesus' teaching when religious leaders and the 12 disciples don't. So in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is telling parables and he's constantly speaking in parables and nobody understands. And even the disciples have to go to Jesus and be like, okay, explain it to me like I'm five, right? But Jesus tells a little parable to the Syrophoenician woman about the dogs not being able to eat the children's bread. And she goes right back with a parable of her own and answers, answers Jesus, a little tit for tat there. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Here's the amazing thing. Nobody in the Gospel of Mark gets Jesus' confusing parables except the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile woman. Mark is doing this on purpose. Not only that, but all the Gospels record that the women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. And remember that according to John's gospel, it was Mary Magdalene who was the first sent one. Apostle is the term that we use often. The first commission sent one with the good news of Jesus' victory over death. 
She's the one that informs the apostles of Jesus's victory. For this and many more reasons, I believe that Paul's instruction is one of honor, respect, and securing the status of all women in the church. Finally, that's a great chart. Super good. We don't wear head coverings. So this is a little lost on us, right? So what does this mean for this worshiping community at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa? I think it means at least this. We must be careful that we do not take our walking orders, definitions, or values from the culture, especially when it comes to men and women in the roles and giftings that God has given them. You know, there's this issue right now where pastors and theologians and teachers who have been preaching the word of God for many, many years are being accused of liberal ideas. But I want you to understand that there is a wide biblical stream. And you know what? There are times where there are going to be conservative values that dip into that stream, that join it. But the end of that stream is not the same as the theological biblical stream. Also, there are going to be times where there are liberal ideas, what we would call progressive liberal, that dip into the biblical stream, like justice to the poor, to the refugee, to the foreigner. These are things we're like, oh, CRT, intersectionality. It's like, or the prophets, the law of Moses, the life of Jesus. We need to be careful that we don't just call these things, these cultural, you know, little like slap stickers. Like, oh, well, you're, the, you're woke. That's what this is. You know what the problem is, I think? I think the problem is that we have a biblically illiterate church. I don't mean that we don't read our Bibles, but I mean that sometimes we don't know what the Bible's actually saying. We've forgotten that God is the God of the fatherless, the widow, the poor, and the foreigner. That's how he introduces himself in the prophets again and again and again. We forget that the law of Moses was about securing protection and provision for these people. Think about the gleanings that would happen. You could glean your orchard or your field, but you had to leave it alone. You could not milk it for all it's worth because everything left over was for the poor to provide for them. There is a biblical stream that is full of grace, mercy, righteousness, and justice. And again, there are times where these cultural streams of conservative and progressive will dip into that, but be careful. Not only that you don't follow that stream, but be careful in the way that you are critiquing. Whatever the world might say, whether on the right or left, conservative or progressive, ancient or modern, they may call us woke and progressive. They may call us emergent. All that's been said about me. They may call us conservative, backwards, ancient, and prudish. That's what they called me in my town that I came from. It just depends on where you sit. Remember, they called Jesus a lot of things. But our call is to live out the proleptic vision of the kingdom of God. A kingdom of honor, 
a kingdom of respect, purity, interdependence, mutuality of both male and female. You know, right now, and I, this might get me in a lot of trouble, but right now there's a lot of talk about like complementarian, egalitarian, just love each other and figure it out. Like in your marriage, like, oh, well, that looks like complementarian. Okay, do you love one another? Do you feel loved and supported and cared for by one another? Then there you go. Call it whatever you want. Live out love for one another. And I would say that also applying to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Oh, are we egalitarian? Are we complementarian? Are we hard complementarian? Are we soft complementarian? We are a community that wants to love one another and invest in one another and the gifts and callings of one another and see what God will do. That's what we want to be. We want to be a haven of healing and protection to those who have been canceled by the culture, labeled, blacklisted, that they would find a home, a place, a refuge of honor among the people of God. See, our gatherings and our fellowship is not defined or focused on who we are even presently. That doesn't define us. Nor is it focused on our past sins and failures, though those are all very real and might have implications. The gathered church is to be a picture and vision of what will be. A kingdom of kings, queens, and priests dedicated to our Savior Jesus Christ. It is supposed to be a vision of a whole new humanity. As I said, the gathered worshiping community should be a haven from the shame, the disrespect, and dishonor of the world. Just like Paul's instruction to the Corinthians to lift these women from their low societal status, we should be a community that seeks to restore the honor and glory that sin has robbed humanity of. A haven from shame and cancel culture because we know the one who can wipe out all our sin and shame, and we are his people. We're people of the promises. Think for a moment just about Ruth and this story, a widowed foreigner who cried out to a just man, cover me, protect me, and provide for me. God calls us to be a community that would do that, that would cover, that would protect, that would provide for vulnerable women. Think of Tamar, who was raped and defiled and cried out, where can I get rid of my disgrace? The answer is in the community of men and women who have been washed, sanctified, and justified, transformed by the beauty, honor, and glory of Jesus himself, a vision of the coming and already reigning kingdom of God. That's where. Let me just bring it home. You think about everything that I'm saying. This is the principle that was employed in the Jesus people movement. Those who were considered the shameful, dirty, and defiled dropouts of society found community here at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and they found Jesus. This place was a haven from the labels, the blacklisting, the dishonor, disrespect, and defilement of the culture. And I believe God can and will do this again. The question is, will we let him? There is this history in the biblical text where people will not get on board 
with what God is doing, and so God's spirit moves on. Think about what happened to the Jerusalem church and how the focus of the Holy Spirit becomes the church in Antioch in the book of Acts. Why? Because the church in Jerusalem is hung up on law-keeping, pharisaical law-keeping, and the church in Antioch is going forward with a gospel that is for all, with freedom and healing that is for all. The question is, God can do this again. Will we let him? Will we cooperate with this glorious vision or will we miss out on this kingdom witness and opportunity? Where do we start practically, though? That's a grand vision, Char. So, like, how do we do that? And I would say as simply as this. Let's start practicing affirmation and encouragement. Let's remind one another of who we are in Messiah Jesus, that we're dearly loved children. We're inheritors of the promises. We're destined to be kings and queens in the new creation. You know, a a culture of goodness is a culture where we build one another up where we bring encouragement to one another. And if we are going to critique one another, it is for the sake of building one another up, not for the sake of exposing and canceling one another. So let's be a contrasting culture to the culture of the world. Let's be a culture of honor, and let's begin doing that by our words, by our thoughts, Paul employs this principle often. Remember, he says, church, the problem that's happening in your midst is you're not considering the brother or sister for whom Messiah died. You're just looking at the outside. You're looking at all the problems. You're looking at, you know, all of these things, labels, whatever it might be, and you're not considering that this is an individual for whom Jesus bled and died. Or Peter Husbands, consider your wives. Dwell with them with understanding. Remember that they are inheritors of salvation along with you. What's happening there? Husbands are not considering the fact that their wives are also redeemed by Jesus, that they are blood-bought by Jesus. And so we need to change the way that we think about one another by seeing one another through the lens of the gospel and then speaking out of that vision to build one another up. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't issues. I'm not saying that there aren't sins, brokenness, areas of healing, but it will come through mutual upbuilding. It will come by pointing to Jesus, the great savior, healer, cleanser, sanctifier, justifier. That's how it comes. And I imagine, this is the vision that I have in my head, and I'm gonna finish with this. If we live out this proleptic vision, when outsiders and unbelievers come into our worship and fellowship gatherings, they will experience what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14, 25. They will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Or what's another one? God was in this place and I did not know it. Oh, I assumed that you people were the judgy people of the world, the self-righteous. I came into this place and God was in this place and I did not know it. God was in your midst. Be it unto me, be it unto you. 
Let's pray that the Lord would do this in us and through this community. For the month of March, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian. Can a Christian become demon-possessed? Is there really an unseen spiritual battle behind large-scale world events and the details of individual lives? If you've ever wondered about the unseen spiritual realm and its influence upon the physical world, then this month's book, The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian, will answer these very questions. If you want to better understand the spiritual battle that we're involved in as Christians, how to recognize the tactics of the enemy, and how to live a victorious Christian life, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book, The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from our guest pastor, Char Broderson, as we study together in the book of 1 Corinthians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.